I direct your attention to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's one of the mountain peaks, maybe three or four mountain peaks of Scripture in the Old Testament. This is one of them. We're looking at King David, the man after God's own heart. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul when I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. About every other sermon in this series, which we started back in the late summer, I've had to remind us that it's not about Eli, it's not about Samuel, it's not about Saul, it's not about David, it's about Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What we've been studying here in these narratives in the Old Testament is the historical account of how God literally, historically, 
in time and in place and over the generations establishes his kingdom. This is the form the kingdom took in the early days. When God made his covenant with Abraham, it was with a man. When God renewed his covenant with Moses, it was with a people, an ethnic group, a tribe. Then God moves through and establishes his covenant, the same covenant yet again. And it's with the nation, the nation that's been united under one shepherd, one king, the southern kingdom, Judah first, and then the northern kingdom, Israel, joined with them, and they are now a united kingdom. And so many things that God promised to his people have already come to pass. God promised them he would lead them out of Egypt. He would lead them out of bondage. He would save them in the wilderness. He would deliver them safely into the land. He's done all of that. There's not failed one good word that the Lord gave to his people. And now time has gone by and the Lord has raised up judges. And now he has placed a king upon the throne. The Bible says the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. Almost everything in the Old Testament that has a literal, historical, personal fulfillment in David or any of the other leading characters in God's history. Almost everything has an immediate reference, but then it goes beyond that. And that's what we see in this particular passage. God says he gave them rest in the days of Joshua. Well, you know, it wasn't a complete rest. God says he gave them rest here in the days of King David. God promises in this passage that he will give them rest in the future. But it is only when we come to the absolute and complete and final fulfillment of all of these promises do we hear someone say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The writer of Hebrews says there's a rest that remains for the people of God. It's an ultimate rest, a final rest. It's a rest of peace. It's a rest of prosperity. It's a rest that is complete in Christ. So really this passage is all about Christ, isn't it? Now, historically, we have the prophet Nathan showing up. And we don't know where he came from. This is the first mention of Nathan. And we'll hear more about Nathan, an extraordinary prophet, very close personal minister to King David. And he's sitting there with the king, and the king is sitting in his house of cedar, that Tyre, that Hiram, the king of Tyre, had contracted and built. And it was a palace. And it was in the citadel of David, in the city of Jerusalem. It was right next to Mount Zion, where David, we saw last week, had pitched a tent and had brought the Ark of the Covenant up and placed it in that tent. And so David is enjoying the prospects. From this point on, we don't see David going to war very much for the, all practical purposes. The great enemies of Israel, the Philistines and the, the Edomites, have been subjected to his uh, power. David is enjoying rest. <laughs> we followed David through the caves and the wilderness and in and out. We see what David's been through. This is rest for David. Sitting in a palatial home on the heights of Jerusalem, 
And he has this need, this urge, this itch within him to do something for God. Because God has done so much for him. He's brought the ark, but he feels that he needs to do yet more. And he has this, this, this urge, this, this desire to build the Lord a house, to build a temple. Now, I would like to suggest to you the temple building is a universal urge of worshiping humanity. Just look the world over and look through the history books. The idea of building a building for the glory of God, for the presence of God, is a strong urge in the heart of the person. But it means more to mankind than it does to God. And Nathan, who at this point is a good friend of David and a very supportive preacher, says, that sounds like a good idea. Well, that's a magnificent idea to build a temple. Instead of that tent that we have over there on Mount Zion, let's think in terms of a permanent house, a beautiful house, a temple. In fact, Nathan the prophet, who speaks for God, in this instance, spoke as Jeremiah warns the prophets not to do. He spoke out of his own heart and not from the revelation of God. And his own prophecy to David was positive and affirmative. Yes, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Go and do. The Lord has been with you in everything you've done, and this is a wonderful thing that you have in mind. Go and do what's in your heart. Now, I'd just like to say parenthetically here that that's not how the tabernacle got built. God emphasized to Moses over and over and over, build it like I tell you to build it on the mountain. Follow every intricate detail of how I tell you to build it, the tabernacle. And the reason, of course, we learn later is that the tabernacle was the perfect picture and the symbol of Christ. Christ in his incarnation, Christ in his humanity, skin stretched over bones. And so many parts of that tabernacle, inside and out, the furniture, the tabernacle itself, all of the things that surrounded it gave us a picture of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But not so with the temple. The temple was an architecture design that was derived from many of the pagan temples in the ancient world. It certainly symbolized and pictured Christ in many ways. And we'll see in just a moment the most important thing the temple symbolized. But David was anxious to build this beautiful temple. He already knew a good contractor. Old Hiram of Tyre was an excellent builder. He already had a site picked out. There was a threshing floor there at the summit of the mountain that would make a wonderful bed for the foundation for the temple. David had already begun to gather some of the materials and gather some of the things that would be needed to build the house. 
But the word of the Lord came to the prophet. And it was a word of contrast. No. You go to King David, Nathan, and you say to King David, Will you build me a house? I never ask for a house, says the Lord. The whole time I've been traveling with my people from the days of the tabernacle all the way through the wilderness wanderings and into Canaan and several hundred years of living in the land, I've been in a tent. I've been moving about. I have not found one particular location. I've not been tied down. I have been at times most imminent in the midst of you as a pillar of fire and a smoky cloud. And there are times in which I've been distant and far and transcendent and high and lifted up and my presence has struck terror in your hearts. I am a God of immensity and omnipresence. I don't dwell in a little house that you've made for me. I'm bigger than that and my purposes are better than that. Not only have I never asked for a tent, the Lord says, but I've always been free to move in all the places where I moved with the people of Israel. But let me explain to you, David, one more time how a covenant works. God's covenant is a unilateral promissory covenant. That is, He makes the rules he sets the stipulation. He has accomplished everything that it needs to bring it about. And he imposes it with his loving, perfect will upon the vassal, upon the subject. David, you are my subject. I took you from following the sheep and made you prince over my people. God says, I've been at work. I've done this. This is my kingdom. This is my work. What I need for you to David is to continue to be submissive to me and to do that which I tell you. And let me tell you this, David. The Lord continues to talk through Nathan the prophet. I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And there's a little play on the word house. In the first instance, it means a temple. The Lord says, you're not going to build me a temple. The house also means the household or the family or the offspring or the lineage. And the Lord says to David, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now we know how all this was fulfilled as we read through the scriptures. In fact, the, the story in the Bible moves through and tells us that David did not build the Lord a temple. Instead, David's son, who was probably yet to be born, Solomon. David was a man of war. Solomon, Shalom, was a man of peace. God granted great things to Solomon. Wisdom, power. In fact, in the days of King Solomon... Israel was the most powerful nation on earth. Now, admittedly, to get there, Assyria was in a bit of preliminary decline. 
Babylon had not arisen. Egypt was in somewhat of decline. And all the glory of the nations came to the courts of Solomon. And yet, it was through Solomon the Lord said, I'm going to give you the offspring. And then God begins to make promises that go way beyond Solomon. Go all the way to Jesus Christ. Even though Solomon built a great temple, you know what happened? In about 400 years, it was destroyed, completely razed and raided, taken off. The people were taken to Babylonian captivity. Even when they returned about 75 or 80 years later, they built the temple again, but it was a pitiful-looking building compared to Solomon's temple. In fact, the old men cried because they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple in their youth and now these 70 years of captivity had come and gone and this new temple built under Zerubbabel and Haggai and others did not have the glory. But the Lord says, I'm going to bring a greater glory to this temple than was the glory of Solomon's temple. And the glory he brought was it was to that temple, Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple that Jesus Christ the true temple came. And here's what Jesus thought about the temple. He said, tear it down. Got in a lot of trouble for saying that too. He knew the great symbolism of Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple that had been enhanced greatly by King Herod and others. That temple had one great significance. It was tear-downable. Is that such a word as that? It was tear-downable. It was subject to destruction. And in that it symbolized the human body of Christ that was subject to death, even the death on the cross. And Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it again. And that's exactly what happened. The temple is to tell us the gospel of the tearing down and the raising up of the very body of Christ. God had gone way beyond Solomon when he talked about he was going to give him an offspring. That offspring moved beyond Solomon. It moved beyond Rehoboam. It moved beyond the whole lineage of the Judean kings and moved all the way to Jesus Christ. And the New Testament over and over and over continues from the first chapter of Matthew all the way through to the book of Revelation to make a big deal how that Jesus Christ of Nazareth and by the way that to name Nazareth comes from the Hebrew root Nazar which means branch or shoot and David is called in the Old Testament the shoot out of the stump of Jesse his father Jesus Christ fulfills all of that he is that offspring, that seed, that lineage, that heir, that dynastic king from David. And he has come to establish a kingdom that is forever. Notice how many times the word forever is used. The Lord declares that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you 
Lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring. Do you get that language? Not just that I will give you a lineage. I will raise up your offspring. That's gospel. That's Christ. That's what poor old Nathan was preaching. Was the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Jesus Christ. Forever. And it's interesting that the Lord anticipates in this prophecy that there will be descendants of King David and Solomon. Some would be obedient to the Lord and walk in the ways of David, their father. And some would be wicked kings. And the Lord promises that the good kings, those that walk in the ways of David, will be blessed. And if a king sins or if he strays or if he doesn't follow in the footsteps of his father David, that he will be disciplined according to the stripes of the sons of man. And that's Christ right there. Jesus was the perfect son. In fact, it said so in the adoption language of Psalm 2. In Jesus' ministry, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I have well pleased. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is the perfect, obedient Son of God. But he came and stood in the place of the disobedient kings of Israel. Those that didn't walk in the statutes of the Lord or follow in the steps of David. He came and stood in their place and took upon him, as the scripture says here, the stripes of the sons of men. Gospel. All pointing to Christ. There's a lot more here than just what I've suggested this morning. I'm just going to conclude with this one little term there in verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. The steadfast love is the covenant love. It's the covenant-keeping love of God. And if there's anything that's going to abide upon Christ, it's the steadfast love of God. And it is through that steadfast love of God which is bestowed upon Jesus Christ as the anointed one, the chosen one, the Savior, the anointed King, that is imparted. That love is imparted to a people. And in the book of Acts, more than once, you'll hear the, the apostles proclaim this little truth. The Lord says, I will return and will rebuild the fallen house of David. And do you know what it's referring to in every case? It's referring to the Gentiles, the peoples, the nation, joining with David and Israel into a mighty nation. The true body of Christ, 
is his people. Salvation is not about buildings. It's about people, rescuing people, saving people. And God has determined that he would. And it's interesting in one passage, which I don't have time to read for you. Let me just summarize over Amos. There was one tribe that was named that would become part of the kingdom of Israel. Of all the tribes, and we've talked about all those ites, you know, the Amalekites and, you know, the Philistines and all the rest of them. But there's one tribe that's mentioned, and it's the Edomites. Edom will come into the fold, into the kingdom, into the population with Israel. What's so significant about that? Well, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And if there ever was a man that was outside the covenant, if there ever was a man where the Lord said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, but in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, he brings the Edomites in. How many Edomites are here today? How many of you have not come to the King of kings and the Lord of the Lord, not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? You're Edomites it said of Esau that he lived according to the lust of his flesh. Everything about a sinner is described according to Esau. Esau despised the covenant. He despised the birthright. He couldn't care less about the things of God. But God loved him. In Jacob, in Christ, and brought him in. And that's the gospel. The gospel goes from David and Israel to Christ and to the world. Every single tribe, every ethnicity, every nation, every people group, none are excluded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. David said, I'm going to build you a temple. The Lord said, no. I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be the household of faith. It's going to be my people. Now, if you want to see some splendor, David, you stick around a few millennia, and I will show you when the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, descends from God out of heaven to the earth. There's a temple. And each of us are living stones fitted and placed into that wonderful temple. It is the Lord that builds the house. It is the Lord that builds His people. A mighty name, a mighty nation, a people resting in the Lord, secure in their place. And as I mentioned, I think it's about eight times this term is used, forever. This is eternal salvation. Where do you stand? What's your, what's your place in holy history? This is not just academic study this morning. This is for you. This is gospel truth. What God said to David 1,000 years before Christ died and rose again. And it's been 2,000 years since then. Never changes. The message that Nathan preached is the message I'm trying to preach. And that is of Jesus Christ all in all. Your Savior, your Lord, your King for all eternity. How about it? How, how have you weighed it out? How have you measured it? 
How have you considered it? What is your commitment? What is your allegiance? What is your willingness to come and, and stay in the kingdom of God? 